Hey, uh, welcome to Project Egg Glass. My name is Hugh. I'm joined by uh, my friend across the Pacific. I want to say Mason. That's right. Well, also the Atlantic. Well, like directly across the Pacific would take me to California. Which is not where I am. I'm in New York. And then I'd go over land to the East Coast. So I would not go over the Atlantic. I mean, but you could go over the Atlantic. I could go over the Atlantic if I wanted to, but it would just be cumbersome and long. So, uh, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing wonderfully. I'm fresh off editing that uh, classic Deadpool two episode. Uh, the one that has had the most downloads yet, if I if I understand. Uh, you're sitting depressing. Hmm. Zoe Deutsch is younger than I am. That's more depressing for me. No, it's not. You're an old man. <laughs> exactly. So why but you should be used to people being younger than you at this point. <laughs> it's like a new thing for me. How how young is she? She's twenty three, so she's only a little bit younger than me. She was born the same year as I was. Were you thinking of uh, hitting that? So because um, we're maybe a little pressed for time today, I'm going to cut off our usual nonsense and uh, just jump right straight into the the podcast. This is uh, the podcast Project A Plus. Uh, as you said, I'm Hunter, and I'm joined by Hugh. This podcast where we talk about movies, uh, generally some sort of theme, sometimes not, as in see our episode uh, at some point in the past. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> uh, but this episode we tried to, I think we got a pretty decent theme going. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's about the aging process. Yeah, I guess I guess to some extent. I mean, both of them have children in them. One of them has way more annoying children than the other, but that's something we'll get to later. They're both family films. I don't know if I'd call this as 40 a family film. I mean, it's a film about family. That's right. Family film. Uh, okay. I'm not saying family friendly. There's too many blowjobs. Yeah, Why? How do your How does your family get along? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great stuff. That was really funny. Are you okay? Yeah. So back to the topic at hand. Uh, we're going to talk about the newest Marvel Cinematic Universe release. Ant-Man and the Wasp, and you can see our previous episode on uh, Avengers, uh, what was it called? Infinity War. Infinity War. <laughs> I was said Age of Ultron, <laughs> which is the other, the previous one. Did we do another Marvel movie? I guess we did Black Panther, but the, that episode never got released. No, no, it got buried. I guess I could still release it. If you uh, pay us, if you hit up our Patreon, uh, you might be able to get access to the the dinosaur episodes. Yeah, we're like This American Life. We only have a few episodes available at a time, and then you have to pay to get access to the full archive. If you're listening to this episode right now, you owe us $30. <laughs> but anyway, so the other movie uh, that we're going to talk about today, along with Ant-Man and the Wasp, is uh, a Judd Apatow movie, which we watched because I am a cruel, sadistic man called This Is 40. And so the obvious connection between these two films is that Paul Rudd, is in the, he plays the male lead, but also there's another additional catch which I unearthed while researching the movie, which is that the cinematographer of um, This Is Forty, a man named uh, Bedon Papa Michel, uh, also was a cinematographer on a film called Downsizing, which uh, just like Ant Man and the Wasp features uh, people being really small. There we go, perfect. So that's a perfect connection. But there is another connection between. There is. You've waited till now to tell me. Mm. You know, now that you said that, I think I know what it is. Okay, good, because I didn't have anything. Oh, I was going to say, at, at numerous points during the movie This Is 40, the characters watch the television show Lost, which stars Evangeline Lilly from Who Plays the Wasp. Yeah. Good good spot. Ah, is there any more? Let's, 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 get, let's, just, let's just have like three minutes of silence um, where we try to think of other connections between these two movies. All right, I'm game.
They're both set in California. <laughs> I mean, presumably. Yeah, I don't think it's specified at all in This is 40 from memory. But yeah, I'm presuming it's California. It looks like California. Uh, so which one would you like to discuss first, you? Let's discuss the one in cinemas. So Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, follows the adventures of Scott Lang. Um, it's acts more less of a sequel to, I mean, in part to the first Ant-Man, but also to uh, Captain America's Civil War, where Scott goes to Germany and then gets arrested for helping Captain America. And it's sort of about him trying to deal with being under house arrest and balancing that with his like family commitments, especially his young daughter, while also trying to be a superhero. And something happens that requires him to perhaps uh, escape from his housebound captivity and assist Hank Pym and his daughter Hope as they battle against this mysterious character named Ghost. Is that it? And one of the main threads is that Hank Pym is and Hope are searching for the original Wasp who has been lost in the quantum zone for the previous 30 years. Uh, Hugh. Quantum place? Quantum menace? Quantum realm. The quantum of solace? <laughs> quantum realm. Okay, quantum realm. One of the best jokes of the film was about the quantum realm. So I guess you should preface this by saying, what did you think of the original Ant-Man, Hugh? Did you enjoy it? Or did you see it at all? Okay, I do need to confess that I have only seen... Uh, all but the last 20 minutes of it, maybe. But the last 20 minutes are the best bits of that film. So I don't, I don't think I'm quite equipped to judge it, but I, I reason, it was, it was reasonably enjoyable. I, I quite like the original Ant-Man. It's, it's got a fun flavor. There's a scene where the bad guy, uh, kills a sheep that he's made small, which I find very entertaining. Uh, it's got very low stakes, like this movie. I, I feel like it is kind of underrated by people because they're like, ah, where's that Edgar Wright version? But I don't know over Edgar Wright a little bit. After seeing Baby Driver, I'm somewhat happy that he's not in charge of this franchise. <laughs> I'm somewhat happy that he has been put on the back border for the Marvel corporate machine. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This movie has a lot of, actually, personality, I'd say. What did you think of the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp? Um, I found the film reasonably enjoyable, which is the exact words I used for my experience in watching most of the first film. But... I think the Ant-Man films, or certainly this one, which is the one I can judge most fairly because I saw the whole thing, um, are easy to overrate, perhaps, mm -hmm. in contrast to the other Marvel Cinematic Universe films. Because, as you've already alluded to, the stakes are smaller, it's more contained, it's not as bloated. It's actually less than two hours long, which is astonishing for these type of films. And there's, uh, there's a, a fresher visual ingenuity to the set pieces and it's it has a fairly light flavor so it doesn't leave you with that overwhelmed feeling which is common at least for me once i sit through that endless fourth act of a lot of other marvel cinematic universe films all that being said i still enjoyed the experience and although i might forget it before too long it's like you've forgotten so much that's just a natural byproduct of of my advanced age you're, you're calling us with a nursey phone you should mention i'm on a pay phone at the front of the nursing <laughs> there's pay phones still all of which is to say i think this is a pleasant film what about you well, I would say I enjoyed this quite a bit. No, no, I mean, what are your merits as a film? <laughs> no, it's just it's just really enjoyable and fun. Uh, I would say it's probably the best like blockbuster I've seen this year, maybe. Where does it fall within the pantheon of MCU films for you? I would definitely say on the upper uh, tier, along with like <laughs> the other ones that I like, like uh, Captain America: Civil War. It's not quite as good as that. Daredevil. <laughs> That's not an MCU film, you idiot. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, this is just a film that's so charming and, and white and sprightly. It's just basically, I don't know if you know this, you, but uh, here in America, things are not going so well. And it was nice to see a movie that was successfully able to take my mind off the horror that's happening right now uh, outside my window. And is just sprightly. It was really funny. I thought a lot of the bits just really hit. I liked that the villains were essentially just the pain and the, the stuff they wanted to achieve was totally valid. It was just the, the methods that they chose to achieve it with were, uh, you know, immoral and it undercuts some of the uh, sort of stock villainy that pops up in a lot of Marvel movies. I mean, the only real villain of the film was the character played by, uh, what's his name? 
Walton Goggins. Yes, I always forget his name for some reason. Which is strange because it's a super memorable name. But yes, Walton Goggins. He plays just sort of like a generic hyper-capitalist, uh, black market businessman. Um, he's sort of like the only villain in the film. It's, I don't know, it kind of reminded me of 80s songs a little bit. It did to me too as well. Like There's a lot of uh, a sensibility of a, an earlier age, I think. Yeah, and I quite I quite like that a lot. I, I liked that, um, unlike something like Thor Ragnarok, where the humor sort of undercuts the uh, more serious elements of the film, I think. Did you see Thor Ragnarok ever? No. Well, while still being like really funny and fun it it really like makes the story that the film was trying to tell sort of deflates it a little bit um by having this sort of ironic and um self-mocking sense of humor and the the sense of humor here is way more sort of uh character driven i think and i think it has some really brilliant set pieces uh i think as you know by the fact that i love downsizing so much just perhaps influenced by the fact that i watched honey i shot the kids a lot when i was a child i really like movies where uh stuff changes sizes (laughs) And this movie uh, does that uh, to a plum. It has some really great sight gags uh, revolving around stuff getting big or small. Um, and I just, it's just got this really fun, giddy energy that just really worked for me. The film has received some criticism about the weakness of its villain um, and the whole ghost story and the Walton Goggins stuff. And I think that's legitimate criticism, but I I don't care that much that it kind of fizzles out in terms of the threat i I mean i don't think the the ghost story is that effectively fleshed out i thought it was fairly well done so i kind of disagree with you a little bit i thought they did a fairly decent job of articulating what the character was trying to achieve and like the reasons behind it making it like a i mean there could have been more of it and it probably would have been slightly more effective but yeah i didn't mind the fact that it was you know in the vein of black panther there's an antagonist who is doing things for a reason that, you know, you can sympathize with to some degree, right? Yeah, but even, I mean, even beyond Black Panther, like, she's not, um, I mean, really villainous at all. I mean, she sort of is in places. Like, it, it's just yeah. that she's so consumed by her task that she doesn't really consider the ramifications or doesn't seem to mind. But there's there's a an issue with the way that story plays out because it ties in with Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, and something that happened in his past with a f- former colleague who was Ghost's father. And Ghost's perspective... And also maybe this perspective of the um, Lawrence Fishburne character is that uh, her father was unjustly fired and outcast by Hank Pym. Whereas we hear later hear Hank Pym's perspective that he was in fact a traitor and he was, you know, justifiably fired, etc., etc. So we get those two perspectives, but it's only a, you know, he said, she said thing. And it's not fleshed out beyond that. We don't really get what the truth is or, or, or a little bit more nuanced to that situation that says where where is actually the truth. It kind of just takes it as a given that we'll accept Michael Douglas's version of the events and then move on. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. Because like, if that were the case, then I think it would have been more interested painting her as like a more antagonistic character, right? It ties into the thread about Lawrence Fishburne's character and their relationship between Lawrence Fishburne's character and Michael Douglas, which is obviously sort of... which is because uh, Michael Douglas's character Hank Pym is an asshole who can't work with anyone hmm. and so like I feel like that um, that was enough to be like it, it tipped the scales in her direction because it was like okay he probably was not justified in firing this man so I don't know oh, I guess that's open to interpretation my perspective on that was just that they were like oh, okay I guess that closes that side of things off and let's just move on. I don't know. It just seemed to be lacking. Yeah, I, think, I think it was a little more complicated than you're giving it credit for. It seemed to be lacking a little bit more shading in the way that that side of things was executed. I would have liked a little bit, maybe a follow-up from his version of events a bit later. I don't think the overall plot is, is a big is a big deal in this film. I kind of The reason you're watching this film is, I guess, because you're charmed by Paul Rudd. Which is very easy to do, I will admit. He's a, he's a pretty charming actor. We'll talk about a little later where a film is not charming at all. But. Yeah, and there's a frequency of jokes in the film. Quite a high density of jokes. Honestly, I didn't find a lot of it very funny, but it was like charming enough that it kind of contributed to a genial atmosphere. I, I thought it was pretty funny. So you've got that, the, the strings you along, and then you've got these set pieces, which always have a visual gimmick where they can play with Ant-Man and the Wasp's inherent abilities to change scale in their suits, which are fun. So that's really all you need from an Ant-Man franchise film. And I think I think it did a pretty good job of balancing the action set pieces with the, the comedy too. 
But again, obviously I found it more funny than you did. The comedic highlight of the film for me was the scene in which Michael Pena has been injected with truth serum and he recounts a section of the plot to Walton Goggins, who's trying to get certain information from him. And while he's narrating this hyperactive story, they show a reenactment of the flashback with the actors in it, and they mime Michael Pena's dialogue, which is an old comedy joke, but a good one, obviously utilised in drunk history, etc. And there's a playfulness to the reenactments and the performances inside those reenactments, uh, which was oddball and probably the most enjoyable part of the film from a comedic perspective, I think. I uh, obviously enjoyed that scene a lot, but it was not my favourite comedic, the comedic highlight for me. So one of the recurring sort of uh, elements of the film, which gives it a certain tinge which the film uses to great effect, uh, is the fact that the suit that Ant-Man or Scott Lang is sort of an experimental prototype in a way, and the regulator on the size thing is not attuned properly, and sometimes it'll just get locked. It'll make him change size at random, essentially, and it'll lock him at a certain size, and he can't change out of it. So there's a scene where they have to go to Ant-Man's daughter's uh, elementary school, and he's trapped uh, being the size of a child. And uh, I just thought the entire scene was really funny. <laughs> Mostly because it reminded me of my favorite film of all time, uh, Clifford. Yeah, I think that's that sequence was well done. But I, I really enjoyed a lot of like the recurring jokes too, I'll say. And I, I, liked, <laughs> I also liked the scene a lot. I think you'll uh, know why I liked it because I'm a monster. But there's a scene where um, Ant-Man's daughter, Cassie, she's looking for her dad in his house. And she walks in on uh, an ant who's been programmed to, like, replicate his daily routine to fool the, like, uh, leg tracker that he's got, the leg brace. And uh, she walks in on the ant taking a bath, which I thought was really funny and weird. Because <laughs> just imagine, like, you're going to walk in on your dad to eat a bath. That's already sort of, like, slightly concerning, right? But he's an ant. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I like that there's two scenes in this movie where uh, Lawrence Fishburne is, like, threatened by giant ants. <laughs> I don't know. It was good. It was really good. Uh, like all the um, character stuff worked for me too. So there you go. <laughs> I, I think the way the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most effective is that they have these various superheroes who fulfill different archetypes, right? And that distinguishes them from one another, even though there is a certain homogenizing effect. You know, they're all quippy to a certain extent. Some less so than others. But I like the fact that they have found a particular niche for Ant-Man within that realm as kind of a deadbeat dad loser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. I mean, I haven't seen the events that are referred to in this film in which he gets arrested, uh, which occurs in uh, Civil War, right? But in this film, he makes stupid mistakes that endanger the mission that, um, you know, Hank Pym is, is trying to fulfill to retrieve his wife, etc., etc. And I kind of like that there's that element to his character of kind of being a deadbeat. Being a fuck up, yeah. Well, because that, I mean, that was his character in the in the first film before he got access to the suit. And I think that's a way of distinguishing him from the other characters. So you got like the, the teenager in Spider-Man and the God and the King and <laughs> the tech mogul. <laughs> the tech mogul. The Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. What a terrible person. One aspect of this that was perhaps ill-timed with the references to Morrissey. That was funny. <laughs> but the problem is the Mor I liked the Morrissey references. Like, if it wasn't tainted by, like, what Morrissey is like right now, they'd be good jokes. I actually thought it was funnier now that he's been tainted, to be honest. <laughs> Scott Lang's uh, cell phone ringer was every day is like Sunday. Oh, really? And then there's a callback to a jukebox that only has Morrissey records. I thought that was a funny joke. The jukebox one. Yeah, that was a good joke, yeah. Okay, so uh, anything else? I think so. Okay, so now we've just finished discussing, uh, just moments ago, I think, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, a film that we both loved, if I remember correctly. Good discussion. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, this is one of our best episodes so far. Um, and now we're going to transition to the other film we're going to talk about today, that we're going to climb along the thread of connection um, to uh, right down the street. We're going we're gonna to take, take the train. Is there, is there a train? The, take the, we're going to drive on, on d down from... San Francisco to uh, Los Angeles and uh, uh, visit Paul Rudd there and talk about the uh, uh, 2014? 12. 2012 movie This is 40. Which we chose because uh, we had a very long discussion that was probably cut out about the film uh, Funny People. No, that's all in the podcast. Oh, is it really? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. That's funny, people. I figured we'd follow it up by actually watching This Is 40 um, 
which is a uh, a movie directed by Judd Apatow and written by Judd Apatow, uh, which is a sort of sequel the to quote from the movie poster, the sort of sequel to the film Knocked Up, uh, a film which both of us have seen years ago. <laughs> I actually have kind of a funny story about Knocked Up. Shoot. Uh, did you say Schumer? Now what the fuck are you tapping now? <laughs> Nothing. I'm not tapping anything. But now it's like a beloved feature of our podcast, so just accept it. Uh, so, uh, my parents... Uh, hello, Mom. Hello, Dad. We're watching a movie knocked up on uh, in our television room when I was... Wait, this is a story of how you were born? Yeah. Can I fucking finish my story? So I walked in on my parents watching Knocked Up, and I must have been maybe 14, right? Yeah. And uh, in the unrated version, he includes, like, footage of a baby crowning, right? Maybe in the theatrical one, too. I don't, I don't know. I've never... I've only seen it this one time, so I don't really know it that well. Um, but I walked in, and I was like, oh, I'll watch this movie with my parents, and then almost immediately it cuts to the scene where the baby's crowning, which is a very weird and awkward thing to watch their parents. So, there you go. That's my great story. So, I guess, I guess we don't really need to talk about, uh, the collected films, our, our feelings towards Judd Apatow, because we went into that, uh, uh, <sighs> in our Funny People episode. Alright, that, that snatch of audio... Had you making grunting noises and a sound that sounded like a toilet. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. I honestly don't. But you know that's that's going to be gold when I edit this. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be great. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually masturbating into a toilet right now. <laughs> um, but let's, let's set up the movie This Is 40, shall we? So, uh, come on. <laughs> Jesus, no, stop laughing like a little child. I was thinking of the sound effect, like after you say that you're masturbating into a toilet. I'm going to have like a tiny little droplet sound effect. This is a great podcast. <laughs> it's, 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 it's weird. No matter how sophisticated I claim my sense of humor is. Do you do that? No, I don't really. But I, I, it's sometimes difficult to make me laugh, at least from watching things. But um, every time I listen back to that bit on the podcast in which I just include diarrhea sound effects. So funny. It makes me laugh uncontrollably. Shall we set up this is for you? Have you done it enough? Have you have you finished with what you're doing? Yeah, I'm all wiped off. Alright. And you got a flush? No. I just like to eat it in there. If it's um You okay? <laughs> I was trying to think of a sperm version of if it's yellow. Let it mellow. No. Nope. Okay. Let's uh, let's let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about the movie so you can get through with this and never think about this is forty again in our lives. Hey, hey, hey! Don't um, tip our hand. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we can think completely neutral and uh, uncritical thoughts about this is forty. <laughs> anyway, so um, this is forty is about two uh, sort of ancillary characters and knocked up who I don't remember at all. So. <laughs> Do you remember their role in Knocked Up at all? In Knocked Up, I believe their function was to be a contrast to Seth Rogen and Catherine Heigl's um, burgeoning romance because they're uh, an older, established couple who are having marital difficulties in that film. And I don't know, some other stuff happens and it goes forever. And then This is 40 is a different film, but with them in it as well. Uh, and apparently, according to Wikipedia, uh, Leslie Mann's character is Catherine Heigl's character's sister. Ah, uh, okay. Right. This is unrelated, but uh, can you imagine getting pregnant by uh, Seth Rogen? Now? Yeah, yeah, great now. Okay, alright. Just think about it. Yep, I've got it. Yeah, you got it. Uh, so I feel like that's like a one-way trip to uh, abortion town. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's get get off the track, off that track, and talk about uh, another abortion, which is uh, this movie. We wish, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's definitely something that makes you wish you had been aborted. <laughs> so um, we set it up briefly, but essentially this is a movie about, I mean, it's a movie about nothing. There's no plot, really. <laughs> but uh, Paul Rudd plays Pete, a person who owns a record labor, record label a very relatable career and Leslie Mann plays Debbie who owns a shop 
and they both turn 40 and sort of a about their trials and tribulations they go through and the they say they say at one point i think like 10 days but like the the time in this movie is such a fluid and uh meaningless concept that it's kind of hard to say if that's accurate uh but sort of the 10 days before they have their joint 40th birthday party and they fight they bicker they love each other they talk to their parents their children are there Paul Rudd tries to launch a new album. They have uh, quote-unquote financial problems. And uh, that's the movie, basically. It's an adequate job setting it up. Has, has the audience become Lucy Liu and uh, that narrative summary? Um, Tay Diggs? Has your summation of the plot of This Is 40 united Lucy Liu and Tay Diggs? No, no, no. Because obviously the audience is Lucy Liu, right? Right. And no, we are collectively. Tay Diggs. No, we're Lord Glenn Powell and uh, Zoe Deutsch. Because you're older, you're more of the, the Glenn Powell, I think. I want to be the Deutsch. But I'm younger, so I'm Deutsch. Is Glenn Powell older than Deutsch? Yeah, she's like 29 and she's 23, which is not a not an age difference that they ever addressed in the movie, which I thought was Man. another. We did talk about that, but it's weird. Yeah. So, and then we're collectively setting up the audience and my narrative summation of This is 40. Right. So your narrative summation of This is 40 is Tay Diggs. So, so we can set them up and then, and then what leads to that is them having sexual intercourse, which is our discussion about the movie This is 40. Right. Okay. So did I, did I do that properly? Hang on one more time. Do we say that again? Yep. Did I do that properly? No, not that bit, the entire thing. One more time. No. <laughs> yeah, all right, great, great. Could set it up, integration. So, what did you think of the movie This is 40Q? Did, I mean, did you, did you like it? So, we talked on a previous podcast, as you already alluded to, about the film Funny People, of which I was not at all fond, and only had nasty things to say about. So, when I sat down to watch This is 40 the film Judd Apatel made after Funny People, apparently about himself played by Paul Rudd and his family played by his family. No, his his uh, wife and his, his daughters. It's not like his father plays his father. No, 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 yeah, yeah. But the main central family of the film is his. So it's a film that's basically what if Judd Apatel was Paul Rudd. I actually tried to approach the film This Is 40 with an open mind because I think it gets tedious, as you no doubt will have discovered if you've heard our previous podcasts, when all we can say about a film is it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. So I wanted to look for aspects of this film which I could at least compliment or highlight as not a light on humanity. And uh, Apatow did present me with a difficult challenge <laughs> in this film, I okay. will say. So I guess let's, let's, why don't we break it down into... Um positives and negatives now in the positive column won't be the first thing you drag so on the positive column i'm kind of looking at this on the back of funny people right <laughs> and i think in comparison to that although it is similarly long and similarly agonizingly long i think it carries its length a little bit more logically than funny people and it does actually build to an extended set piece and it winds down after it's concluded what it's what it wants to say. So there was some sense in the way it was put together, even though it still has the hallmarks of flabby improvisation and scenes that are much longer than they should be. So on that basis, I, I think it is a more coherent experience than Funny People. Well, I guess I can't disagree with you because I watched Funny People in years, but uh, I did not find this movie to be very coherent at all. Like I could actually see what it was going for. I think I can see what he was attempting, but it, it, some of it felt too um, circular to really build anything meaningful to me. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it it is a successful film by any stretch. I could see maybe the structure he was going for. I just don't think he carried it off successfully at all. Like it doesn't even need that much plot for what he's trying to do, and there isn't much plot. Obviously, there's more of a plot to funny people in some sense, although that feels more aimless in other senses. So I could at least see that he's trying to explore themes of 
relationships and aging and family of his his life the usual stuff that he deals with you can see that what he was what he was trying to say or at least bring out in these scenes i still think it could have had the same effect if he literally cut the film in half now other positives i think um of all the actors who have to endure the Apatow method of improvisation. Albert Brooks avails himself with the most dignity, I think, being both the funniest and the best at pathos as well, potentially. Yeah, I didn't find his character to be funny or him to be moving at all, either. I was, like, the most amused by, like, just listening to his voice. It wasn't necessarily what he was always saying, but I liked his delivery of, of the material. I, yeah, I just kind of enjoyed Albert Brooks in this just for being Albert Brooks. I was like, I enjoyed that outline of Albert Brooks, but whatever the content was, I thought it was terrible. So. Um, and now I run out of positive things to say about the <laughs> well, film. This is 40. Can I, uh, can I go down my positive? Uh, yeah, you go. Um, you go. I like that John Lithgow was in this. Yeah, he wasn't bad either, actually. That's all I've got. The, yeah, the parents were maybe the best. <laughs> that's, that's, that's literally the only thing I thought that was okay. decent about the film. So we liked one of each of the parents. <laughs> But it's not even that... No, okay, uh, let me just... It's like, I like that John Lithgow and Al Brooks are getting work. Like, John Lithgow is, like, fine in this, but his character is so, like, thin that it's, like, whatever. No, it's not, yeah. Albert Brooks is a, at least a better character in this film. Yeah, theoretically. John Lithgow goes to be, yeah. But, uh, I, again, I like that they're getting paid to be in this movie. The same thing with, like, Michael Ian Black. I have the same reaction as well. I was like, oh, I'm glad he's in it. <laughs> it's like how I was happy that Nathan Fielder got money for being a disaster artist. Even if none of the movie was going to be, wasn't funny in it. Yeah, I think this movie is um, maybe the worst movie we've done together. I say that about every bad movie we do. But uh, I really uh, didn't like this at all. Did you laugh at any point? Okay, um, maybe this won't surprise you, but I smiled when Paul Rudd farted. <laughs> um, because it, it, it was either really good sound work or he actually farted. And knowing Paul Rudd, there's a possibility he did actually fart for that scene. I did not laugh during that, I'm sorry to say. And Leslie Mann reacted, like, perfectly. Now, I must admit that I did laugh at one point, but it was only, like, after I had uh, been broken by the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was laughing at the fact that I was wasting my life watching it. This is, like, uh, the only other movie I could think of that did this to me was uh, Suicide Squad, which at a certain point I was just like, I've wasted my life. Why am I still watching this movie? And I only feel that occasionally, and uh, this is 40 and Suicide Squad are similar in that, inspiring that feeling in me. But uh, yeah, did not find this funny, did not find it moving. If I am like this and I am 40 years old, just shoot me in the head right now and uh, throw me in the gutter, because uh, I would rather be dead. <laughs> what did you think about the music in this movie? Um, it's terrible. I mean, John Bryan does the incidental music of which I didn't really, I didn't really notice it. Nope, me neither. So it's mostly just the usual scenes stitched together with whatever shitty music Apatow likes. <laughs> like, uh, Graham Parker. I like Graham Parker, actually. I, I don't know anything about. We can, we can talk a lot about Graham Parker for this. Oh, great. I'm so fucking excited. I mean, like, there's, there's some stuff on the soundtrack that I like. Like, I guess it's got, like, Loudon Wainwright III, who often appears in Apatow things on the soundtrack and stuff like that. But as soon as it makes its way into a, an Apatow score, I hate it. I don't know. What, I can't remember much else about what songs are included. They just all were annoying and terrible. Did you ask the uh, Ryan Adams ending? <sighs> Deus Ex, Ryan Adams. <laughs> Hugh, you're 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 closer to forty than I am. Did you find this movie uh, emotionally moving in that way? Did you? But did it make you reflect on your your age? Well, no, no. Let's let's enjoy your joke a bit more because I do like the idea of a film in which Ryan Adams is literally the Deus Ex Machine. I mean, that's what he is in this. Essentially, <laughs> I just like the fact that that is, that is true. What you just said is true. He resolves the whole film. So because I'm eight years away from being forty, I am sixteen years. That's basically an entire lifetime. And if I want to start mirroring the lifestyle of Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann's characters, I need to start procreating now so I can have young daughters. You need to go back in time, actually, because the children are older than yours would be if you had them now. Yeah, yeah. Did you relate to their, uh, the economic struggle that was depicted in the film? This is, I think, one of the great movies about class that's ever been released, but unintentionally, of course. 
No, I, I couldn't relate to the economic problems of someone who is able to give away $80,000 to his father in two years and they each have their own business. And the massive house, the central conflict of this film is are they going to have to get rid of their massive houses they don't need? <laughs> like, fuck off. Like, I, you know what? I live in, uh, uh, I don't know if the listeners is, I live in the, the city of New York City where um, uh, apartment sizes are uh, very small. <laughs> Mm. Uh, my room uh probably as big as uh like maybe their bathroom in this movie <laughs> and uh i have to say uh listening to the be like oh no we're gonna have to sell our house uh filled me with uh anger and rage <laughs> and i can't say that i uh really felt bad for them and i i was actually hoping they'd be more economically devastated than uh having uh a, a money bag in the form of fried adams fall into their lap at the last segment of the film i i agree like cause, because i th- i think if he actually had the courage of his convictions there are scenes that are designed to be uncomfortable in which paul rudd and, and leslie Mann are having some sort of conflict and there is there is some darkness to his portrayal of these people at this particular stage of their life but it never or he never has the courage to take that to a, a properly bleak place i don't know I mean, it's a, it's a comedy, but... You're saying it should be like scenes from a marriage. <laughs> yeah. Or another film that occurred to me, um, I think it's called Everybody Else. The Marinade film? Yeah, yeah. I was wanted to watch that. Which is a, a great film that is funny and devastating and, you know, a lot of different things in its portrayal of this insular portrayal of this this couple yeah and that's the type of bracing brave portrait that i think avatar only half commits to with some of the scenes he allows into this film do you think it was impossible for him to actually make a movie that is as dark as some of the scenes in this movie suggest that it could have been because he cast his like real family i think it's more than that yeah of course I think it's just his natural sensibility would not allow him to be that bleak. No, I agree with that. I'd admire the film more if it had like a downbeat ending. The, w- the way this film resolves ruins whatever it achieved in previous scenes. Yeah, because it's such a shrug. Because it just resolve all their issues. That's fine. Yeah, I guess it's okay now. What did you think of uh, Judd Apatow's children? Uh, I mean, the performances aren't terrible for children, honestly. Um, I just hate that they're in it. Uh, I actually thought they were both incredibly annoying. <laughs> but I mean, it's, I find most kids in films annoying. Yeah, I found that to be especially annoying. Like, especially in comparison to watching Ant-Man and the Wasp, which has a pretty decent child performance, I think. Yeah, actually, actually, she's good in that. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, just comparing that to, like, the uh, very sort of one-note performances that come out of Judd Apatow's children's mouths when they're playing themselves, uh, I thought was incredibly annoying. Should we talk about the fact that within the, the fictional realm of this film, Paul Rudd's character, who, as you said, owns a record label, is intent on reforming Graham Parker and the rumor, and he's releasing a record and also flying in Graham Parker to perform, and then later flying in the rumor to complete the reunion. So that happens in the fictional world of the film, and also in the actual world of making the film. Mm-hmm. Because Apatow has essentially done exactly the same thing as his stand-in in the film. By putting Graham Parker somewhere where he doesn't belong, which is this film, or within the film, in the film, it's the record label because he would not be a financially viable prospect for a record label of the size, you know, that's like three employees big. And he he and Paul Rudd literally reunite Graham Parker in the room <laughs> for this film. Even though, you know, it's a self-effacing cameo in, in some respects because Graham Parker has to play someone who has no commercial prospects. It's still spectacularly self-indulgent of Apatow to have this plot in the film at all. What did you think of the other celebrity cameos or in this film? Not that there were a ton of them. Well, Billy Joe Armstrong. Did you know that I saw the uh, American Idiot Broadway show? <laughs> was it good? <laughs> yeah, that's great. I really liked Green Day when I was a teenager. So Megan Fox is in it as eye candy for the male characters, essentially. Yeah. Kind of a very insulting role. Christine Yee doesn't get much to do. No. The the thing I like the least about Judd Apatow Productions is his particular style of improvisation. Yeah. 
which is the same for every actor he seems to work with. This may just be what improvisation is, or it may just be the type of improvisation that he likes and keeps in the final edit of the film. Well, I feel like there's something different between this and, like, the improvisation that drives something, like, I don't know, like the movie Anchorman or any of the Adam McKay movies, you know what I mean? It's a little more, like, grounded in character, I think. If you look at his films and how how it works, it seems to be the same every time. So the the one technique they use is to make an observation that something is either like or unlike something else and then do two variations of that observation. Mm -hmm. So it's the comedy rule of threes. So they've said three versions of some observation. So the, the example that I can remember, I won't remember exactly how he delivered it, but Paul Rudd is in the hospital at the end of the film after he's had that accident on his bike mm -hmm. and uh leslie mann meets him there and says like are you allowed to leave are we allowed to go and he says this isn't one floor of the cuckoo's nest which is observation a then we get two variations it's not a mental institution just as a variation of the same don't put a pillow over my head it's the third part and that is the underlying structure of every improvised comedy sequence uh i might i might disagree with you about that one specifically because they go on a larger like riff on one flew over the cookie's nest i mean even the pillow over the head's a reference to the one flew over the cookie's nest no i know i'm not saying i'm saying it's all based on the one observation but no like they, they do they do talk about they do talk about it uh, additionally when they're like walking out <laughs> i don't know if that's the best example <laughs> i guess i have to go back and watch the film to make sure <laughs> It doesn't mean like the whatever they've said can't be used elsewhere. Yeah. But the delivery is to in rapid succession to say, "Hey, what? Why are you wearing that dress? Are you clown blah? Like, is this the blah? And is this the blah? It's that. That's that's the format." You know, my favorite part of uh, his style of improvisation is I would not actors like um, obviously like flub their lines and he keeps it in as like a sort of like a natural a touch to naturalism. I love that so much because it definitely doesn't feel like. You're deliberately doing that to make it feel more naturalistic. I noticed that so many times. It was so annoying to me. Because, like, again, like, there's sometimes when you do that, like, when you do, like, that sort of, like, one-take style of some like, Clint Eastwood where it kind of works. But uh, I did not find it to be effective here at all. Because <laughs> it wasn't, like, uh, it wasn't, like, mirroring human features. Obviously, obviously full of stutters and, like, um, bad utterances. It just felt like I was having my attention drawn to the fact that someone messed up a line, you know? Which, in fact, pushed me away from the film even further than I somehow could have been. Do you know what my favorite part of the movie was? When it ended? Yeah, yeah, of course. No, I did when um, Paul Rudd was racist to the uh, Indian doctor. That was great. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. That's like the same scene, but more. this time it's more racist. Or <laughs> racist. Um, as the scene in Funny People in which um, Adam Sandler makes fun of, of the Swedish doctor, which is basically the same idea, but this is the legitimately racist version. <sighs> what do you think of uh, the principal two actors, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann? Um, I don't think Paul Rudd quite fit this role as a schlub, because, like, I mean, he's right age, I'm sure. He's probably older than 40 when he made this. Yeah, he's 49 right now. So it'd have been forty, uh, one. So now he's the right age. Okay, close enough. But he he's so in shape. Yeah, I mean, there's one shot of his body that look kind. Of, I mean, it looked like, look like my body, which is to say, not great. But um, yeah. I know they try and hide it, but it's clear that he's he's still Paul Rudd. Yeah. His hair looks weird. I know other actors comment on it, but it just doesn't look right. It's not like something that anyone would wear intentionally no it seemed more like the that his character should have been played by robert smeagol who looks more like judd apatow <laughs> that would have been great i actually kind of enjoyed um the triumph little bit on the set of this is 40 literally could not care less but he does he does um ask judd apatow if he's heard of final cut pro and the fact that you can actually edit films down <laughs> that's good do you, have, do you have any other uh, observations you have to make about this supporting? No. Do we, should we recommend it to our fans? I mean, if, if, we have, if we do have fans and they enjoy these podcasts, you probably will like This Is 40. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's self-indulgent and uh, formless. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to go out and say that 
this podcast is slightly funnier than this is for me. Ugh. Slightly. I feel like he should just stop. Like, at this point, like, the idea of, like, a man-child as a comedic force is so, like, it's so through, you know what I mean? It's just, like, not even, like, it's, like, one of my least favorite, like, archetypes now. I just, I just don't care about watching men having to grow up. And I think there's some, like, weird gender politics with the, the way he has women as, like, this, like, um, symbol of maturity. And maternity. Yeah. Because it. it's always about women getting pregnant or being the fulfillment of the male character's desires. Or, or as, like, a symbol for their maturity and, like, the uh, their emotional the, the emotional climax of the movie. Except for, like, funny people, I guess, which doesn't really end like that. I remember actually. I mean, you know, it does a little bit. No, because 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 it has that for as a side note or a side plot line with um, Seth Rogen and um, Aubrey Plaza, right? Aubrey Plaza, yeah. But the whole the whole man child thing that you were talking about, it's even more wearisome to me because I grew up on like Kevin Smith films. Yeah. <laughs> which I do think, in a lot of ways, are more progressive. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like Chasey Navy is definitely a more progressive film than this is. Yeah. Take the two that we've done. At least. Um, the you know chasing Amy doesn't mm-hmm. let Ben Affleck off the hook no, for doesn't. being a, a dick, and it definitely doesn't uh, put them back together. You know, there's no like Ryan Adams like reuniting them. <laughs> God, the end. God, God, <laughs> uh, I I really hated the like music dichotomy that was established in the film too. I like fun music. I like depressing music. I think I he was trying to have some self criticism there, right? But I found that to be, like, annoying because the entire rest of the film was revolves around him, like, or is so self-indulgent about his music tastes, you know? Uh, any one final shot? Uh, I guess, should we recommend this the movie to our, our loyal listeners? Or should we do Star Eats? How should we, how should we codify our, um, our, uh, put into, like, an objective, um, system of value our opinions on This Is 40? I, w- I would give it 8 out of 10 for reasons to kill yourself. <laughs> Should our scale just be different every time? Yeah. Uh, I will say that I what would... What we give it out of 40? I would say, oh man, uh, there's a 40% chance uh, that while you're watching this, you'll fall into a deep depression about how meaningless everything is. So, there you go. Don't watch it. Or do, don't listen to us. No, don't, don't watch it. I mean, do listen to us, but don't listen to our advice. No, do listen to our advice. Specifically, this is pretty... Picture a box, just your average, everyday box, except this one doesn't have any marks on it. It's an unmarked box. You don't know where it came from, you don't know where it was going, but I'll bet you'd like to find out what's inside. Join me on Unmarked Box, every uh, so often on uh, Off Brand Horse. Maybe I'll just uh, rip it and then send you a copy. Rip it up and start again. It's like my great impression of Edwin Collins of Orange Juice. Literally none of those words mean anything to me. So Orange Juice are a Glaswegian band from the 80s. And the lead singer of Orange Juice, the aforementioned Edward Collins, later went on and had a hit in the 90s with Never Met a Girl Like You Before. Know that one? Nope. Or, Or do I need to sing a few bars? No, please don't. Uh, you know what, I, it turns out, did you know that I was, I, I was only a child in the 90s and don't remember it that well? I guarantee it would have been used in, like, so many films that you'd recognize it. Never met a girl like you before. Nope. Come on, that was a good rendition. My version of Rip It Up is better. Than the actual version? Yes. Oh, I can't wait to edit that Friends episode, that's gonna be good. Oh, Right, well, uh, shall we move on to what we've been watching? I watched... How many movies did I watch? How many movies did I watch? <laughs> Not how many movies did I watch? <laughs> Please stop. I've only watched uh, three films. One of them is The Matrix Revolutions. Because I've been trying to go back and watch movies that I own on Blu-ray that I haven't actually, like, watched. <laughs> and uh, I'd watched the previous two Matrix movies, which I bought on, like, a combo pack, you know? And I had never, I've never seen the third one. And I thought it was okay in parts. Some of it was just sort of like pointless and uh, kind of lost what made the other two movies interesting, I think. Um, and there's some interesting visual effects 
but it gets really lost when they go down to like the human defeat against the robot attack, which just seems to go on forever. Uh, and is like such an obvious like homage to like mecha anime, but like fails to capture what makes those those movies like interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't didn't didn't especially care for that one. Um, have you seen The Matrix Revolutions? No, I only ever got as far as Reloaded. <laughs> what do you think about? Do you like the original Matrix? Yeah, it's alright. I mean, quite a bit. And Reloaded is better than its reputation, I think. I mean, um, I have to renounce my citizenship if I don't favor Dark City over The Matrix. Wasn't The Matrix also shot in Australia? It was, yes. So. But Dark City was made by more of an Australian director. Uh, yep, yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, so the other only other two films I watched uh, watched Ghost in the Shell, one of my favorites, um, the classic anime film about uh, ghosts and goblins. And then I watched the first Zatoichi movie because I recently uh, obtained the complete Zatoichi box set in the Criterion sale, um, and that was pretty good. It's just kind of like the genre. The two I just I've just been watching the genres that I love the most. The, the sort of niche genres that I love the most, which is, uh, like, sort of Japanese historical films, but not, like, like the prestigious stuff, just, like, the junk, you know? <laughs> like, the very sort of um, genre and uh, pulp um, side of the historical fiction divide uh, Japanese films, which is weird, because I have, like, no affection whatsoever for, like, um, American or, like, European historical films for the most part, um, but I really like <laughs> Japanese historical films a lot. And uh, which, the other genre that I, I like is uh, cyberpunk uh, <laughs> science fiction films. Uh, both the, uh, the Matrix and Ghost of the Shell sort of qualify as that. Uh, so I've just been hitting the, the stuff that really makes me, really gives me a huge erection. Um, and I really like the first Satoichi film. It's, it's sort of, uh, it kind of reminded me a, a bit of um, uh, Yojimbo, actually, in that sort of uh Zanuichi just like wanders into town and then gets embroiled in this conflict between two gangs it's definitely not as com- complicated or as interesting as that film is um and it's more about uh and actually uh Jimbo meets Zanuichi at some point so but um it does have a very interesting strain of like a, a moral vision that I liked a lot and it's unexpectedly sort of movie at the end too which I was not expecting I mean like a lot of a lot of movies like this sort of are about the individual moral code when placed against a world that is like you know chaotic and horrible and uh, sometimes you just want to rip it up and stuff no <laughs> a joke that i don't even understand i bet none of our audience is gonna understand my brother will he's the yeah the main hundred percent primary audience target and i've already done that impression to him in right. person several times can i fucking finish mm-hmm I'm excited to go and watch the rest of the 25 film collection that I now own. And the, actually, the director who directed many of the Lone Wolf and Cup movies is also uh, responsible for several Zatoichi films. His name is, I'm going to look it up right now, including this one. Kinji uh, Misumi. And he's uh, he's got a very interesting uh, visual style, I think. Yeah. I think sort of a slightly underrated like pulp director. And all the Lone Wolf and Cup movies he did are, are amazing. <laughs> And actually, uh, the main, the lone wolf of Lone Wolf and Cub uh, is actually played by um, the guy who plays Zatoichi's brother. So, there you go. Yeah, I think that's everything I have to say about that. Uh, if you like sort of junky but entertaining Japanese circle dramas like I do. Circle jacks? Uh, that's really funny. Um, what's the, there's like a term for them that I can't remember. Okaki? No, shut up. I <laughs> <laughs> Geki? Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Um, I, I have a real affection for that genre. Well, that's uh, that's all I got. Uh, I believe it is now your turn to go. I guess we're similar um, to some degree in that we we both sought comfort viewing in the period preceding this episode and the, to the previous one. Um, so I littered my viewing with romantic comedies, beginning with definitely maybe. Which one's that? Which is essentially a movie version of How I Met Your Mother starring God. Ryan Reynolds of Deadpool 2 fame uh, instead of our beloved Josh Radner. <laughs> One day, audience, uh, if you subscribe to our Patreon, that will exist at some point. You will gain access to our uh, our uh, Josh Radner files. <laughs> okay. Please continue. I'm sorry I interrupted. 
the gimmick of definitely maybe is that Ryan Reynolds is telling a story to his daughter about his experiences with three different women, but he's not revealing which one of them is her mother. When did this movie come out? 2008. So it was, it was well after the TV show had premiered, I believe. So I feel like you could just say that they just ripped off the premise from How I Got Your Mother. Yeah, that premiered three years prior. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enjoyable enough. It's just silly romantic comedy fluff that I enjoyed. Not a great film by any stretch. Uh, I also caught up with Doctor Strange. Mm, kind of, okay. A little overrated, I think, in the Marvel pantheon. It has some good visual effects. I agree. I mean, the main reason I watched it is that Slant Magazine did a ranking of all the MCU films, and they put it as number one. So bizarre. Because it's just kind of like Iron Man, but with better effects and worse leads. Again, like I said about Ant-Man and the Wasp. They put Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, very high on that list, too. That was within the top five, yeah. Which I maybe would agree with, actually. It's easy to maybe overwrite Doctor Strange in the sense that it's more contained, not as bloated, and it's more of a simple story than some of the other MCU films. Um, but it's still not great. Like, it's it's fine. I mean, I said that as someone who's a pretty big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so that's, that's so you. I think it's, yeah, it's like, okay. I wasn't wowed by the special effects th- I think I think all. they have some good stuff. But the main plotline is just, like, uninteresting, I think. I like Benedict Wong a lot. Well, it, it seemed... I like Benedict Wong from his British work. Uh, and I think he's pretty good in this as well. Yeah, I agree. Definitely better than Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his accent is terrible. Dormammu! <laughs> I've come to bargain! Okay, what, what I did not enjoy is the whole mystical training in the East thing. Yeah. That basically plays out exactly like it does in uh, Batman Begins. Yeah, pretty much. Including having the guru be played by a white person. <laughs> at least, at least uh, well, I guess it's kind of similar that there's like a uh, subordinate uh, Asian actor. Yeah. In Batman Begins, it's uh, Ken Watanabe, right? He's great, obviously. Yes. I also concluded my um, run of films that was screening. It was a series about Kanuya Tanaka, and they were showing uh, Mizuguchi's Women of the Night and Ozu's Equinox Flower. So Equinox Flower is a late 50s work of Ozu's in a very similar style to the films he was making then, using the same troupe of actors that are in a number of his other films. And this one is about a daughter who wants to marry someone and her father disapproves. It's more of a comedy than, say, Tokyo Story or Late Spring, um, but it still has that, you know, melancholy, wistful Ozu vibe about it. Um, but it's really quite funny in parts. And then it has a sweet, gentle ending. Mm-hmm. It's just another perfect Ozu film. Great, yeah, I get it. You fucking like Ozu, Jesus Christ. Um, women of the Night is interesting. It's another of Mizuguchi's fallen women films, of which he made tons. Like, it's it's his central theme is women turning to prostitution, etc. Um, which, as I've said on a previous podcast, uh, he had direct experience with. Mm-hmm. Both frequenting brothels and uh, having a sister who was forced into prostitution. I think we talked a little bit, when we spoke about Mizuguchi on a previous podcast, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about the dichotomy between Mizuguchi as a man and the types of films he was making. And Kinigo Tanaka, who acts in both of these films, wanted to become a director in her own right, and she did end up directing films, and they showed a couple of them in this series. But Mizuguchi, who had used her in, in a ton of films throughout his career in prominent roles, campaigned to block her acceptance as a director. Jesus Christ. At the studio, um, something for which she never forgave him. But she ended up becoming a director anyway. He was outvoted or, or whatever. So it's just hilarious that he makes all these films about the plight of women and then he, like, blocks the career progression. Of... In fact, he puts women into plight. Yeah. And what's hilarious, so, and she was, she's, she was, like, such a huge actress in Japan that there was a time in her career in which they would literally put her name in the title of the film. That's <laughs> so funny. So an equivalent today would be, like, having a Tom Hanks movie and calling it, like, Dr. Hanks. And it's just, like, Hanks playing a doctor. <laughs> I'd watch that. Just to just to notify the audience that Tom Hanks is in it. Um, but Women in the Night 
uh, is yet another film about a woman pushed into prostitution due to the economic um, conditions in Japan at the time, post-war Japan. And it tells the story of, of her and her sister and another character as well, who all fall in one way or another. Mm. So there's a certain tone to the film, but it ends in this like kind of gloriously trashy sequence in this amazing set of like a ruined, uh, a series of ruins by the rail yard or something in which all these prostitutes have gathered and they have a massive cat fight. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say cat fight. Maybe that's inherently misogynistic to say, but they, it's very like trashy. Like it feels like an exploitation film at this point where there's this huge fight and then it like the camera pans up uh-huh. to a church mosaic mm. um, as part of the ruins. And so it's so silly that it kind of works. So it's definitely not his, his most um, elegant construction, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. In, in as much as watching women being forced into prostitution is fun. Uh, the other films I watched, I watched another Ryan Reynolds romantic comedy called Just Friends, um, which is the story of Ryan Reynolds wearing a fat suit when he's put in the friend zone, oh, as it were, with uh, the girl he has a Wait, crush on. Wait, did you just on. be really funny? This is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on another tangent real quick. <sighs> <laughs> Fine, I won't, I won't. Okay, um, so it's. <laughs> All right, go on. No, I'm not gonna do it now. All right, fine. <laughs> so it's. Starts... Fuck you! <laughs> I just gave you a chance to do it. And now you've lost the chance. Now you're gonna forever. You and the audience are gonna forever wonder what I was gonna tell you. Well, maybe some of the audience, but not me. Um, so, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds uh, wears a fat suit and plays a teenager who has a crush. Mm. On his best friend. Mm. <laughs> this is actually... I really wanted to ask you on this movie because the Netflix poster for it is just like Ryan Reynolds in a fat suit. I was so like, what the fuck? It's not the most sensitive of movies. <laughs> wow, I'm very surprised. Uh, so you said it does not have a, uh, a woke screen uh, TM? No, it doesn't. It doesn't really make any concessions to being anything other than garbage. <laughs> That's good, at least. I'm sorry I keep interrupting you Please describe what this movie is Alright so it's Ryan Reynolds in a fat suit Playing a teenager who's in love with his best friend Who's played by whom? Amy Smart Who's in uh, the the Crank movies So she's the one that Ryan Reynolds is after But obviously she just wants to be friends Because Ryan Reynolds is just like a fat jackass (laughs) Um, So then he leaves town and becomes a successful Like talent agent or something Uh huh and becomes thin and Ryan Reynolds-like. And because of his experience being friend-zoned as a kid, <laughs> he's developed, like, a player mentality. He's uh, becoming a misogynist. Yeah. Through a series of accidents or mishaps or whatever, he ends up back at his hometown and sees her again. And she's like, oh, wow, he's skinny now. And he thinks he can win her over with his new jackass mannerisms or whatever but that doesn't work and then obviously they get together in the end but he's just like he's like an asshole when he was a a fat guy (laughs) you know because he's like an incel right (laughs) and then he becomes like a a womanizer who's like an asshole so he becomes a a pickup artist essentially yeah and then he goes back to his hometown acts like an asshole in in various different ways and then she ends up with him anyway like there's no point in which like he his facade drops and she has any really real justification for developing any feelings for him whatsoever. It's yeah, it is, it's just uh, not good, is how I would classify this film. Um, I rewatched Tokyo Story. Uh huh. Uh huh. Still garbage. Uh yeah, you're you're. I think I think uh, it goes like you're always here films like this is forty and then Tokyo Story just under that. Yeah. I watched Notting Hill for the first time. One of the one of the seminal romantic comedies, though. Yeah, it's very very solid, enjoyable romantic comedy. It's it's worth watching. You should watch it. I'm not gonna like it. So, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't worry about the fact that we're recording a podcast or anything like that. Uh huh. I'm just a guy talking to another oh, guy, Lord. asking him to watch Notting Hill. All right. So I also. <laughs> Wait, you're not gonna go into it at all? No. I also watched. Uh, 
um, a film that I've seen numerous times in the cinemas, 2001 A Space Odyssey, because it was my last opportunity to see the Christopher Nolan supervised 70mm version that tries to get as close as possible to how the film would have looked when it was originally screened in 1968. And it's uh, it's a really great print to see if you get the opportunity to do so, which you could have seen yesterday. I could have seen it yes last night, but I did not, so sorry. Oh well. Uh, I watched a film that, in as much as I can tell after one viewing, probably could be in my top ten films of all time. Uh, okay. Which was a film from 2012. Can I guess what it is? I bet you can't, but go ahead. Uh, this is forty. Yes, damn it. <laughs> did you did you like watch that too? Or? Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. It's definitely your top ten. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is forty. I'm working on the film. This is thirty two. I'm trying to entice Paul Rudd to play me. <laughs> I mean, you definitely could play somebody who's thirty two years old now. Yeah, you could. Which is concerning because he's almost fifty. And it's just this guy who like doesn't have a job and uh drinks boxes of wine and records a podcast he's gonna fight me and like all the other characters in his life are like what are you doing with yourself you've got to pull yourself together and he's like no my podcast is gonna be big how's the beginning have you not written that part yet hmm? how does it end i've been all-